0: This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank.
1: Hi, this is Marty Moore. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for C2 Education, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is Episode 356.
1: Oftentimes, with the pressures of Wall Street and other things that are constantly flying in front of us, Sometimes we lose sight of what really drives value, and the reality is value is only derived through you know, future cash flows, discounted back to today. And that, again, it's a very simple concept, but I think it sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. And we've really, uh, as a company, tried to clarify what our ultimate financial objective is, which kind of is along these lines. And we say very consistently in both our internal communications and our external communications that... Our uppermost financial objective is to maximize our intrinsic value per share and we make everything else subsidiary to that and it sounds simple but it's really important to find that kind of beacon and then line everything up to that
0: From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Sean Quinn, CFO of SimPress, a firm specializing in mass customization with over $2 billion in annual revenue. If you only take away two items from today's interview, and Sean Quinn offers a good deal more than two, you'll learn about the power of compounding and deriving new value through capital allocation. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday. Built for the future. Deck company specializing in e-commerce mass customization. Uh, now, Simpress has 20 plus different brands today, one of which I knew right away called Vista Brands or Vista Print. Excuse me. Sean, welcome.
1: Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks for having me. and Happy New Year, too.
0: Yes. Happy New Year, Sean. And uh, let me mention last month before the holidays, uh, my daughter and I as we've done annually for all so many years uh went to the vista print site and created our holiday card
1: it's great we'd love to hear yeah. that
0: <laughs> well we're, we're loyal customers and i've been impressed how the uh the process has advanced and, and been simplified over the years uh but before we uh, touch on uh your offerings in the business uh let's find out a little bit about you and your career and we would like to ask you to look back and identify what were the career experiences that you feel prepared you uh, for a CFO
1: role. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. And I, this is something that I, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have worked with just some great people and mentors that that helped me get to where I am today. And so I, I mean, the way the way I would describe it, I think you, know, you mentioned milestones for me. There's probably. Yeah, probably three main chapters, if you will. Um, and I think the first one started off when I you know, made the decision to start my career in public accounting with KPMG, and that was back in 2001. But yeah, you know, long story short, I had um, I had actually accepted a job with Accenture as a consultant, and that was coming out of university in 2001. Keep in mind, you know, the economy was really starting to struggle. Um, I still remember sitting on the couch and and watching 9/11 happen, which was, you know, just a, such a disaster, and, and um, you reflecting on that, and, the, uh, and Etcetera actually started to push back start dates. And so and I was just really eager to start my career. I had interned with KPMG the summer before, and uh, they had found out about my situation and gave me a call and asked if I still wanted to join them. So I jumped on it, uh, again, eager to start my career. And that really turned out to be just the perfect place to start. You know, I learned a lot quickly. You know, I think really got a just a great foundation having had the chance to go in and learn about a lot of different companies um, and uh, I met my wife there so I should say that so that was a that was a that was a big moment um, but I was fortunate to work with some to some really great people that still today I try to model my approach after which you know sixteen years later and uh, you know one thing I learned was to uh, really attach yourself to to someone or something that you believe believe in and believe, was rising through the organization, and really just work your butt off behind them, and uh, I was fortunate to have worked with a few people that were just great role models in terms of uh, balancing work and family, and but also just doing things the right way, working hard. They were really smart and treated people well. So that was kind of chapter one for me. The um, the, the second milestone for me was still with KPMG, and um, in 2006, I, my wife and I moved over to London for two years with the firm, and... You know, I grew up in, in in northeast Philadelphia. I went to all the way through university in Philadelphia. The first time I was on a plane was when I was in college for a rowing race over in London. So I, 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 was, I lived a pretty insulated uh, life. And so living overseas and working with and being friends with just a really international community just opened my eyes up to this world that we live in now that's so global. And so that was another chapter which really, for me, just sparked this awakening of uh, this, this whole world that was beyond uh, this small area in Philadelphia where I, where I grew up. So that was important. And then I'd say the last one was really my decision to join Vistaprint at the time, which you referenced, Jack. Uh, the company is now uh, called SimPress. We changed the parent company name a few years ago. Um, and, you know, candidly, I, I was probably never more unsure of a decision uh, in my life, or at least an important decision, going from what I would consider a fairly stable and certain career path to this unknown and I told myself you know if I was ever to leave it would be for uh, only for a great company that I thought had significant growth opportunity as a company uh, that had great people that I could continue to learn from and for me the role was kind of third in that list because I thought that you know if there was growth in the business and that there was learning that would ultimately be the key to my to my personal growth and it was probably dumb luck but I really believed in the in the business model at VistaPrint at the time. Um, the people I met were top notch, and the founder was and still is our, our CEO. And uh, so I made the leap, and that was eight and a half years ago. And still to this day, um, you know those things, those qualities about VistaPrint and Simpress still remain true for me. And I hope for the whole team here. We just have a have a great team, and that was a that was a huge decision, uh, but also uh, one that had such an impact on on my career.
0: Okay to hear a hammer. I don't know if that's gonna start again
1: <laughs> yeah unfortunately that's uh we have a sublease tenant that's coming in on the fl- floor below us, which is a, a good thing, but the bad news is that occasionally you'll hear a hammer okay
0: all right We'll include that as part of our discussion because I think our listeners will will be curious um, what what uh, can I ask when did uh, um, when did it go public uh, was it did it go public as Vista print or was it simpress?
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was VistaPrint. That was September of two thousand and five, uh, and the company was founded in nineteen ninety five, uh, actually over in Paris by, uh, as I mentioned earlier, our, our current CEO is, is our founder, Robert Keane. and um, so yeah, it was September of two thousand and five that that we went public, but as VistaPrint.
0: So when you arrive uh, in the CFO office and you've climbed the ranks, really at, at VistaPrint and Simpress. What is the type of role you want to create for yourself? What was, uh, what did you realize? You know, now I have this opportunity. What was that opportunity?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can still remember the day actually, um, and the role uh, became available because our uh, former CFO took the CFO role at TripAdvisor, and uh, which was a fantastic opportunity for him. Um, but you know, I, I was I, I was uh, have been very fortunate, you know, in my whole time here that as we grew quite substantially as a company uh, uh, during the last eight and a half years, uh, that I, I had a chance to get to get opportunities, and um, including including the CFO role, which I took about two and a half years ago. And um, you know, at at the time uh, taking that role, you know, it's a it's a it is a big step um, and. Uh, especially for a public company, there's a lot of things that are attached to that, and uh, they get taken extremely seriously so i was I was both excited and you know frankly uh you know a little nervous of the unknowns as well um but I think that's how that's how you get better and um like I said before, we have a fantastic team here, and so I knew that um yeah, I was very familiar with with the role because i had I had either overseen or uh, done a lot of the you know a lot of the various functions. Uh, within the CFO role or had worked closely with those teams over time. And so that was great because I came in with not only a, a great understanding of the company um, and the various functions, but you know, as a team, we had worked so closely together for many years. And so that was a great, you know, just a great, a great start. Um, and there were really only a few things that were the, kind of the, the, the newest. Um, you know, for me, there was a, there were a few things that were important to establish right out of the gates probably the most important one was to establish somewhat of a new relationship with our CEO and founder I mean we had already a strong relationship but it was formed through a different through a different lens and so I wanted to make sure that you know we were able to establish that relationship with me as a trusted advisor and uh, that for me was really important to get to get right um, and the same goes for the relationship with the executive team as well you know it's just a you you, you have those relationships you know those people but it becomes a bit different, and you you need to make sure that that trust is established quickly. So that that was that was very important for me. I think the other thing is just I wanted to stay close to the team and just the realities of what it takes to operate and execute. Uh, we have really ambitious goals here uh, as a company. Uh, Robert, our founder, has always been that way, and that's kind of in our DNA. Um, and so we're continuously evolving and growing. And so I wanted to stay close to the team as we continue to do that and make sure that, you know, we could simplify where possible, um, really focus. And that, that was important to me because I had I had to kind of climb through the ranks, as you said, and so I had that real understanding of what it takes to, uh, to, to op- operationalize and execute against these things, and I didn't want to drift away from that.
0: Can I ask about um, the competitive landscape? And we mentioned the 20-plus brands. Uh, that Simpress has today. Uh, and, and I imagine some of them are uh, brands r- known on, in other parts of the world, perhaps more than here. But what would you tell us about uh, Simpress's offerings?
1: Yeah, so the one that uh, I think most of your audience is probably in the U.S., so so clearly Vistaprint would be most familiar. But um, if you were to go to Europe, there's a, a much broader portfolio that people would be familiar with, depending on the country you're in. But uh, we it's, it's a very global business, um, you know, all the way to China and India and Japan and Brazil, um, you know, Europe, uh, North America, uh, and so on. So um, maybe just to, I'll step back explain a little bit about kind of what we do for those who don't know and then explain competitive advantage. So you know, Simpress, um, we, we call ourselves the world leader in mass customization, and I'll explain kind of what that means. But for for about 20 years now, we've been producing – with the reliability and quality and affordability of mass production small individual orders where each and every one of those embodies the personal relevance inherent to customized physical products and so jack you, know, you had mentioned designing you know, holiday cards with uh with i think your daughter you know um, and you may have ordered you know 100 of them or 50 of them and it's that kind of thing where you know we we, we produce with <coughs> reliability quality and affordability of mass production these individually small orders. And so that's really where the, cost, the, the competitive advantage comes in, which is most notable in low order quantities. And in, in the market that we operate in, if you look at traditional markets for custom products, each individual job has to be designed and put out to bid or quote, and there's extensive time and energy that are spent specifying and communicating just a, a ton of details that are required to accurately create the custom product. And then you have machines that have to be set up and transportation is required to deliver that thing. And, you know, basically every step of the value chain in a, in a traditional environment um, is uh, leads to very high fixed costs per order. Um, and high fixed costs per order don't really matter if you're making really large volumes of something. So think about, you know, in, an automobile uh, manufacturer or, you know, even things like you know, toothpaste or cell phones or even actually long runs of custom printing, um, if you have setup costs um, uh, that are small on the overall scheme of things because the volume is so large, then that's okay. But with custom products that are sold in smaller volumes, again, referencing back to your holiday cards or if you needed 100 business cards, then those those setup costs have to be amortized across a much smaller base. And so anyone familiar with printing knows that uh, you can buy you know, 10,000 offset printed brochures for not a lot more than it would cost to get 5,000. You've just got a little bit more press time added to the mix because of the setup costs are pretty much the same. So mass customization, when we say we're the world leader in mass customization, mass customization really solves the question of how do you customize something for an affordable cost without having to produce these really large orders, but do so instead in tiny individual orders
0: so what what are the numbers you're looking at uh, daily then you know are there are there you know what are the key metrics that you rely on to to make sure every <laughs> the business is operating the way you want it to
1: yeah, sure I, for me it's, it may be a little bit different than some of your listeners would experience, and the reason it's a little bit unique is that you know my role as the cFO of uh, at the surprise level, which is the the parent company, and we have as you referenced, we have many businesses that operate around the world uh, in kind of a decentralized way and so when I come in every day um, you know it's not like uh, I'm looking at you know a dashboard of you know, orders from the prior day or something you know that's at that kind of granular customer metric level of course in each of our businesses the the, the finance leads and business leads you know, have those metrics that they're looking at and so um, you know there's a few things you know on a weekly basis I'm pretty focused on look at bookings for each of our businesses just to make sure that we're on track. Um, but of course, you know, as I said, in each of our businesses, there's very specific metrics that that um, that they look at as you know the, the best indicators of, of performance. Um, you know, one thing that we changed, which may be interesting to you or your or some of your listeners, we changed our ultimate financial performance metric that we use for budgeting and just the typical kind of monthly and quarterly reporting to unlevered free cash flow, which we used to always be focused on some measure of profitability. Um, And so one of the things that I'm very focused on uh, are the various drivers to our free cash flow as we move through a quarter, whether that's, you know, of course, profitability and EBITDA, but also things like working capital and our cash taxes and ultimately what our cash and debt position is um, as you roll that up at the Simpress level across all these businesses.
0: Sean, we always like to ask uh, our CFO guests for strategic insights. And I've asked the same question in a variety of ways over time. I used to ask for aha moments. Now I'm asking for finance strategic moments. Uh, But uh, it comes down to given your unique lines of sight into the business. During the course of your career, what strategic insights have sort of registered with you along the way and influenced perhaps your thinking?
1: yeah it's an interesting question and i hope um i hope i answer this for you, but you tell me if i uh if i don't um there are yeah there are a few things that um you know i was reflecting on that um that i thought i'd share again it may not be completely on point here but uh so just tell me if if this doesn't answer your question but it's more of a i guess a category of things rather than a specific story or example but let me let me give it a shot here so i mean, i think one of the one of the biggest insights that that's empowered me and I think has really helped us as an organization. Um, And I really think will stay with me for the remainder of my career, which I thought may may be useful to share, is what I've learned from some of our long-term shareholders and researching other successful companies um, and also a few specific books that I've read. And just as some context, um, we are very fortunate to have not only uh, a founder who's our CEO and also a significant shareholder. Uh, but we've been able to, over time, attract uh, very long-term-oriented shareholders that just think about things in a different way than uh, those that may, for whatever reason, be more short-term focused, and, um, and that's been, a, that's been a, a really a big help. Um, so what, what have I learned? Uh, one of the things is really just about the power of compounding, and that doesn't sound so strategic, um, but I'll I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go a little deeper on that in a moment. And then the other one is just really getting a crisp understanding of what drives value. And I think that can only happen through great capital allocation, which as finance professionals and a CFO, I think is, is, is our most important job. Uh, So let me go back to the first one, which is compounding. So I think it was, um, I think it was Einstein said, uh, that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world or something like that. And um, compounding sounds like, you know, a very easy concept and, um, you know, When you look at it in terms of returns on a portfolio or even you know, savings for personal retirement or something like that, you know, the power of compounding um, can be applied to, to so many things. But if, if you just – like one of the things that's become so clear to me is if you just get a little bit better each day and repeat it and repeat it, it can be so powerful. And I think we can apply that to so many things throughout – Uh, each of our businesses and the way that we operate the business. And, again, it sounds simple, but it can be very powerful. Um, And there's a story that one of our shareholders um, uh, had told me or a question that they had asked me, which was, um, if you could choose between a million dollars today or a penny that doubles each day for a month, which one would you choose? And, I I don't know, at least to me, the first reaction is, like, well, geez, that that seems obvious. A million um, dollars seems like the way to go. Um, but if you do the math a penny that 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 penny after thirty days would be worth five point four million dollars and if it was March where you had thirty one days, then you'd have ten point eight million and it's just a very simple illustration of just how powerful compounding is and and I think that speaks to the way we can look at the business and really just each day come in and get get a little bit better and work on the work with the team to get a little bit better and improve. And the ability to compound that over and and those learnings over long periods of time is just is just extremely powerful so that's that's one big thing which again doesn't sound so strategic but um, has been a real um, something that I reflect on often and then the other one is just um uh, just getting as i say crisp about capital allocation and realizing kind of what is important within that and and what really drives value and I think Oftentimes, um, you know, with the pressures of Wall Street and other things that are constantly flying in front of us, sometimes we lose sight of what really drives value. And the reality is that is, you know, values only uh, derived through you know, future cash flows, discounted back to today. And, um, and that, again, it's a very simple concept, but I think it sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. And we've really, uh, as a company, tried to clarify what our ultimate financial objective is, um, which kind of is along these lines, and we say very consistently in both our internal communications and our external communications that our uppermost financial objective is to maximize our intrinsic value per share, and we make everything else subsidiary to that. And, again, it's, it sounds simple, but it's really important to find that kind of beacon and then line everything up to that. Um, and that's really been powerful to me. I, I think that the, there's, uh, there's a book that I've read that uh, was sent by a few shareholders to myself and to our CEO a few years back, and I've actually shared it with my whole team. Um, and I've actually had the author come in and, and talk to the team. And that's a book called The Outsiders, which, Jack, you, you may be familiar with. But um, uh, The Outsiders is written by a, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Will Thorndike and i I think it was referenced in one of buffett's letters some years ago but it basically profiles eight different ceos that in kind of an unconventional way drove um, uh, returns in their business that were just dramatically better than the rest of their peer group and it talks about kind of the 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 themes that led them to that and tries to drive those themes through the eight different examples and for me it's just you read it and um, things get a little bit demystified and you realize you know what truly is important um and over long periods of time what can drive value uh, so if you haven't read it uh and you're in the audience and you're a finance professional i would definitely recommend it and um i think uh i think i think I learned a lot from reading it and i think uh i think i think you you will probably find the same thing
0: I'm wondering how it in the history of this company uh the chapter that's now being written when uh, your c f o tenure uh will will be part of it what would you title the current chapter of of the history of this company that you are now helping to lead as a finance leader? I have to imagine that when it was apparent you would be the next finance leader, the CEO, uh, and and part of that, uh, uh, what you talked about there, about uh, building that relationship, there was an agreed sort of here's the chapter going forward, whereas your predecessor had a similar relationship with the CEO, and together they, they authored. An earlier chapter together, then it became here's the next chapter. That we have to, we have to author, and I don't know if that uh, fits the way you see things uh, having unfolded. But is there a chapter here you're now authoring with your your CEO?
1: I think, of course, when you have a, a, a founder CEO and a long-term shareholder as well in that in that role, yeah, you know, they 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 put a, their fingerprints are still, you know, uh, all over They're, this they're, they're
0: architecting it, and and you, you're participating am. in that.
1: Yeah, so I don't want to take I don't I don't want to take too much credit for uh, for authorship here because we uh, we have a visionary visionary leader that that has you know led our led our success and so but but I would say the chapter Jack is, is probably something along the lines of capital allocation excellence or something like that. I mean we have when I joined the company we were 600 million in revenue. Um, actually, we had just finished a year where we were about closer to 500, 516 million in revenue. Um, it was just the Vistaprint business. It was just North America and Europe um, and back then it was all about like you know how do you keep up with the the growth of this of this specific company um and then you know there was another chapter which was you know, we had we had to reinvest back into the Vistaprint business um after a period of uh of having too short term of a focus. And then we um, started to, through M&A, allocate a lot of capital to buying uh, businesses and complementary segments, and that that was sort of like the next era, I would say. And now um, we've kind of evolved our strategy one more time. Uh, We sit here today, and Simpress is really kind of a holding company of um, this collection of great mass customization businesses that we've, you know, we've fully decentralized our operations into these businesses. So from an organizational perspective, that was a big change, and then we've chosen to keep certain things central that we think add value across, you know, across these this portfolio of businesses. And as we sit here today, given that we have a lot more levers to think about in our capital allocation, and I think that creates opportunity to. Even further accelerate our success, or further further um, uh, execute on our success. So I think that's kind of the era that we're in now. And um, you know, we're a larger we're, we're a larger company. Um, we have a, a great base of uh, long-term focused shareholders, um, and we've even aligned our all of our kind of uh, compensation and incentive mechanisms against that as well. And so I think that's kind of where we are now. Um, and where I think we can be for, for a little bit of time here.
0: Thought Leader listeners, we invite CFO Sean Quinn to step into the mentoring round after these words from our sponsor. You want smart? of year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Sean, we're going to ask you to uh, look back in time again and uh, try to recall what it was like when you first stepped into uh, the CFO office for the first day and uh, wonder what that one piece of advice may have been that you wish uh, somebody uh, perhaps had shared with you.
1: That's a great question. um, As I reflect back on it, I think um, uh, the biggest unknown for me was the whole piece of the public company CFO job, which is, you know, talking to the street, talking to sell-side analysts, um, you know, going out to investor conferences, talking to current and and potential investors. And I think that there is – I don't know. There, there, for me, there was this uh, this built-up sort of uh, mystique about what that world was like, and I think with the benefit of some time and uh, spending a lot of time with our shareholders, I think the the biggest thing I maybe I would just I would just say there is, um, you know, be transparent and um, really make sure you understand your company, and then tell your story of who you are. I think the the biggest thing that I've learned is. You have to communicate who you want to be, Uh, and and I say that, who you want to be as as a company, Um, and then stay committed to that. And um, that's something that uh, was probably the biggest unknown for me coming into the role because I just hadn't done it before and thought, geez, you know, I have to be careful. Do I say this? Do I say that? And the reality is you first need to make sure you figure out who you are as a company and where you want to be and where you're going and what's important. And then and then commit to it, and uh, that has been really powerful by, for me individually, but also for us as a company. And um, and it's really been some of our larger, long-term shareholders that have given us the confidence to yeah uh, you know, to do that. And so that's probably the biggest maybe word of advice I would have is that especially someone coming into a public company CFO role. And um, and uh, yeah, maybe I'll I'll leave it there.
0: Can I, can I, I'm wondering about, uh, again, you know, it was pretty clear that I think the CEO, and you talked about establishing that relationship with the CEO, which is so important, a founder CEO uh, as well. And and you talked about how your predecessor uh, had an opportunity, a good opportunity to move on. But at the same time, we know that there was an acknowledgement perhaps that yes, Sean is ready for this role. And I'm wondering uh, at the same time, uh, it's always interesting to see the uh, sort of the passing of the baton and how that actually happens and i'm wondering if there was perhaps a board meeting before your predecessor left where of course you were uh, brought in or sat at the table where you you might not have uh, spent that time there before or whether shareholders that as you just emphasized those relationships are so important for a finance leader to to have did was there did your predecessor uh, uh, or was there a period where you were allowed to uh, extend and build those relationships beforehand, or is that something that happened after? Um, anyway, anything that would reveal how the baton is passed—is anything come to mind?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> for us, I mean, it certainly it was not the not the plan that um, uh, our former CFO was going to leave. Just you know, there was a great opportunity for him that was presented, and he made a tough decision, um, uh, and so but yeah you know, we had had active uh discussions over time about succession planning and so yeah you, know, you never know exactly when you have to pull the plan off the shelf but uh but we did have a plan and uh, we frankly pulled it off you know, a, a little bit earlier than we had uh, anticipated but nonetheless that that plan was thoughtful and and, and there you know i think for for me that there was not a um kind of a a, a board meeting that i came into as a, a almost like a an interview without an interview type of a thing I think what had happened, Jack, is, you know, over a long period of time, especially through my relationship with the audit committee, given I had come through kind of the controllership side of the organization, yeah, I had built uh, very, very strong relationships with each of our audit committee members. Um, uh, and so I think there was a lot of trust that had been built up there over a long period of time. Um, so I think that really helped. Um you know, there were some board meetings that I had attended, but uh, but most of my board relationship was kind of via the the audit committee, um, and uh, you know I think that I think that was the that was the main thing, um, and that in addition to, our my relationships with with our CEO and and others, I think allowed them to feel comfortable. Now th- there there are different types of. CFOs and different types of CFO backgrounds, and so our former CFO came from very much, very much of a investment banking and strategy background. That's where he had spent his career, and that's actually how he joined the company. He was running strategy, and then uh, and then uh, came into the CFO role. I obviously came from kind of the other side of the CFO uh, spectrum, if you will, um, and so there were different things that we did in response to that um, to make sure that the organization was kind of you know, fit. Fit that profile, um, and that really helped, uh, especially initially, to make sure that you know there wasn't you know five new areas that I was you know out of my comfort zone. It was two or three, and 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 uh, and actually you know it was only six months later that you know we again kind of changed the organization a bit and uh, and uh, expanded the role. So, um, so yeah, that that's kind of how how it came to be. I think the the biggest thing is. Uh, especially if it's someone in your audience that's coming through the controllership organization. I was the chief accounting officer before having the CFO role. And, um, you know, when you're in those roles, that that trust that you have with the audit committee, I think it's huge. And and, uh, that track record of reliability that you build up over time can be a foundation from which ultimately the full board and the CEO can get comfortable that, you know, you can apply the same things. Uh, at the c f o level even if there's some areas that you haven't you know you haven't had full responsibility for in the past,
0: not every uh chief accounting officer uh has all the communication skills or the uh experience maybe uh, that uh, a publicly held c f o w- would require
1: no question yeah, no question, and it's something that um you know you don't learn overnight until so, I think, um, it certainly helped that, um, you know, referencing back to just the board setting, you know, kind of leading those audit committee discussions and stuff that was, yeah, that, that, uh, and, and learning how to do that effectively, you know, that's one way to do it. Um, you know, I had a fairly large team, uh, before taking the CFO role. And so that really helped me learn how to, uh, you know, just com- communicate internally better. And I'm still, I'm still learning there for sure, um. But, uh, but I think that was a big help. And I think you just need to have practice, you know. And, you know, I think the, one of the biggest things that I've learned in my career, I've been so fortunate that here at Simpress and formerly Vistaprint, I've been able to, uh, to get on a very consistent basis is, like, you, you're only improving if you're uncomfortable. And, and continuing to push yourself to be uncomfortable means that you're growing. And, yes, it's uncomfortable, but you're growing. And uh, I think when it comes to communication, Jack, you know, it's just another area where we have to continue to push ourselves to get uncomfortable as we grow up through the organization or as we change roles or, you know, if we have aspirations to do something larger, you've got to get in front of larger audiences. Um, uh, you have to learn how to write effectively. And uh, you can only do that if you're continually pushing yourself to get to get uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable a lot uh, in my time here because we were growing so much as a company and that allowed my role to continue to change and evolve and expand. Um, so that was kind of forced uh, uh, in, you know, in a good way. And I think in, if you're in an organization that's not growing like that, you have to find ways to, to, to really you know, force that yourself and, and, and get yourself uncomfortable, whether that's experiences internally with the company or uh you know we're just doing doing things externally that that get you that experience
0: is there a personal habit you believe is contributed to your professional success
1: yeah habit um i don't know maybe there's two things one is that um one is so what one is i think you've got you've got to work your butt off um uh in anything that you do uh to be successful, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I I grew up, as I referenced at the beginning of our conversation, grew up in northeast Philadelphia. My father worked uh, most weeks, seven days a week. Um, he had a day job, but then also a couple jobs, you know, that he would either be doing at night during the week or and on the weekends. And so um, there's, of course, pros and cons to that. But, uh, you know, I, I just thought that that was sort of, Normal and um, so not to say that everyone should be working seven days a week, and not to say I do that now necessarily. But um, I was very comfortable with working a lot um, and, um, and and as needed to to you know to get done what we needed to get done. And so I think that yeah, you know, that's one. I don't know if it's a habit. Uh, sometimes that's a that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. You have to obviously uh, keep keep that in check. But you, you got to work hard. Um, And I I reference back to, I I had talked about the power of compounding, and one of the things that's great about starting your career in public accounting is that, you know, when you you take someone that starts in public accounting versus one of their friends that may start in just a normal sort of, you know, corporate environment, uh, the reality, whether you like it or not, is in public accounting you're probably working, you know, on average, I don't know, let's say 12 hours a day and your buddy may only be working eight hours a day, compound that over, you know, the course of five years. You know, you've gotten that much more experience than your than your buddy and yeah, you know, you're only five years into your career. And so I think, you know, again, thinking about the, the power of compounding, I think you can apply that in a lot of different ways. And I think it's 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 true with work effort and, and willingness to put the time in. Um, so that's one and um yeah maybe the other one is just you know uh just staying staying kind of um humble is not the right word but uh you know i i was fortunate to be able to come kind of through through the ranks here and i think it's just important to stay grounded in the realities of day to day operating activities and stay close to the team and um i think uh and there's there's times to step away from that of course too but i think that's important and uh i think um sometimes being being a bit hands on it, it just keeps it keeps you connected in a way that you hopefully understand some things in a more granular way than you know if you were further away. And I think you can use those things to your advantage.
0: Our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next twelve months?
1: Wow. It's a good uh well, it was a good time to reflect on that in early January. Uh, we happen to be a June fiscal year end, but uh, um, yeah, it's, I, I think often about those for even in. Uh, of course, you, you think about like losing some weight and you know eating better and stuff like that on the personal front. Um, in terms of priorities, I think um, uh, I think you know, one one is is definitely around just staying focused and and executing. We we've, we've gone through yeah, we're always evolving and changing. We've um uh, organizationally we've changed a lot over the last year. Uh, I think that those have been the right decisions. It's been a great thing. And I think there's still a little bit more we have to do to just fully cement the wiring in for that. And so um and so that's that's um that's a big one. I think yeah, maybe the the other one that I would I would reference is that um We've also changed, and I referenced this earlier in the conversation too. We changed uh, what we've asked each of the businesses to focus on, and what we're holding them accountable to, to a um, a metric which is unlevered free cash flow. And when you have wired a business or many businesses to think about profit or operating profit uh, over a long period of time, uh, there's just some things that they're not educated on uh, that they wouldn't naturally think about, and that's of no fault of their own. It's just, you know, it's what we've asked them to focus on. And so it's really important that we educate uh, deeper into the business uh, what we mean by um, wanting to focus on our unlevered free cash flow, the levers that exist to, to achieve that. And uh, it opens up this whole kind of world that people haven't been focused on, again, because we haven't asked them to focus there, uh, which is really understanding their balance sheet and understanding working capital and, um, so there's a there's a big educational process there, and I've already seen the power of aligning people on a you know a metric that is what we want them to focus on and what that can do. And um, so I want to continue to make progress there. John Quinn, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for having me, Jack.